0: Welcome to the May 3rd, 2021 edition of Digging Out. As we consider the last four days, four weeks, four years, 400 years, as well as a couple of millennia to understand more fully how European descendants come up short on understanding Native American sovereignty. Returning to do this is my guest today, Jacqueline Keeler, a Diné Ihantuan Dakota writer and activist with her latest book just out, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. Her family is of the clan of the Towering House, her first ancestors descending from Changing Woman. Jacqueline is editor of the anthology Edge of Morning: Native Voices Speak for the Bears Ears. Oh, Tioshpaya now. The Good Men Project and Pollination, as well as contributor to Red Rock Stories, Three Generations of Writers Speak on Behalf of Utah's Public Lands, and Telesur English. She's hosted a podcast, Not Your Disappearing Indian, among other programming on community radio, KBOO. She's also contributed to The Nation, Salon, Truth Out, New York Times, The Daily Beast, Mother Jones, Quartz, Dartmouth Alumni Magazine, as well as on PRI's The World, BBC, MSNBC, and Democracy Now!, and really works the Twitter sphere. She comes to us today from her home in Portland, Oregon. Welcome back to Digging Out, Jacqueline Keeler. Thank you for having me. Jacqueline Keeler, the most basic thread in your new book carried out in all your work is storytelling, whether of creation or increasingly of destruction. For me to host this interview is a negation of what you're all about. And I'm aiming for a bit of a hybrid to honor the venerable tradition of storytelling for our only one half hour together, which those limits too, they assault their tradition. Let's hear you tell about the themes of sovereignty and standoffs. So I guess before the big lie about the legitimacy of the November 2020 presidential election, the first big lie was about the sovereignty of Native Americans on this continent. And in stories, you talk about how the fundamentals of our history is teaching, it's an algorithm. So I want for our listeners to listen to how you relay the stories and how it is an algorithm and it's a counter algorithm to the algorithm that has been published into our American history's teachings. So maybe we could start with the story of Take One Egg, how that story can explain so much of the collision of the sovereignty, indigenous peoples on the American continent, defilement of that sovereignty. Take One Egg. Yeah, what I examine in the book are the origin stories
1: of a colony, and a colonist, and the origin stories of an indigenous people or native nations here in the United States. And by contraposing these two origin stories, which I do call algorithms, because in each story, it basically lays out sort of the relationship that the colonists or versus the indigenous people have to the land itself, to Mother Earth. And I think it's very important to understand that because what we often deal with and what certainly the Bundys, my book Standoff compares the two different standoffs that happened in 2016, which I covered as a journalist uh, starting in January 2016. I live here in Oregon and and, uh, I woke up shortly a few days after the new year and found out that Ammon Bundy and his brother, Ryan Bundy, of course, the sons of Scufflaw Rancher, Clive and Bundy, who did that standoff himself with the BLM in uh, Bunkerville, Nevada, where their ranch is, I woke up to find that his sons had taken over and were occupying with military, with arms, with guns, um, a, a wildlife refuge here in the state of Oregon. And they did this in defense against uh, what they saw was the uh, wrongful um, imprisonment. Of two ranchers in Harney County, Oregon, which is an incredibly large county, uh, which is the size of New Jersey, and it's about five hours um, southeast of, um, of Portland, Oregon. And so they had taken over, and they were and they were taking issue. the uh, The ranchers, the um, the Harmons, uh, the father and the son, had been um, found guilty. Uh, Basically committing arson on public lands that they uh, leased for um, grassland for grazing and also other things as well. And the law, uh, which was basically part of a bundle of terrorists, uh, it has the name terrorism on it. um, Basically, uh, you know, they were under that law, which was passed by Republicans. And uh, there was a minimum sentencing um, of five years. And the judge had ignored that um, previously and only sentenced them to one year and which they had served. And so so then uh, they were being sent back uh, to prison. And this is what he was protesting. And uh, so he announces that he gets there. And much like his father, you know, talking about his ancestral rights to the land around Bunkerville, Nevada, the Bundy brothers come in and they start talking. Uh, Ammon Buddy announces that he's there to get like the ranchers back to ranching, the miners back to mining, and the loggers back to logging, you know, restarting up the economy in Harney County, which has a population of about 7,000 people. Like there's more cows in Harney County than there are people. And of course, there's a tribe there. Um, they t- the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, which they take over, is also um, a remnant of the Malheur Indian Reservation, which was about 1.8 million acres, which the Paiute people lost after the Bannock Wars. And the the Burns Paiute people um, are still there. And uh, they're about a very small tribe, about 400 survivors. But uh, in January 2016, when Amon Bundy took over the wildlife refuge, he didn't know this, but it was basically almost on the anniversary, um, the 137th anniversary of when um, the Burns Paiute people were forced march. Some of them shackled two by two in um, a foot of snow up to the Yakima Reservation in Washington State. As I mentioned, um, Burns is about five hours from Portland. For me to drive to the Yakima Nation is like, this is driving times, is like another two and a half hours. This is a very long journey to have to take on foot in the winter over mountain ranges and also across the Columbia River. And many of them returned afterwards and they were outlaws. Uh, they actually swam across the Plum River, some of them allegedly holding the uh, tails of their horses, you know. And so they came back, they had lost their lands. And then they were in 1920, they were given uh, the dump, the town dump, right, to live in. <laughs> and so and since then, since the 1950s, they regained their federal recognition. They got land back. And so they were an active part of the process of basically determining how the land was going to be used around the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. And in fact, what Ammon didn't know was that, um, that the uh, community there, the ranchers, the descendants of the white ranchers who had been taking part in the Bannock Wars, and the tribe, tribal members, and also other organizations like the Audubon Society here in Oregon, had worked together to create a compact, a use compact, that was considered the gold standard of cooperation in the country right and uh, and they were very proud of what they had done they got almost no news coverage by the way I interviewed a lot of the ranchers and, and folks who were involved with that and they were you know the and Bundy's take on it all just you know the, they just ran with it and didn't counter it with actual factual things and so I go through that in my book you know and then of course I compare all of this you know uh, to uh, what happened at Standing Rock I, you know in December 2016 I was uh, end of the year, they're covering the, uh, the water protectors' protest um, against the Dakota Access Pipeline, and also the Standing Rock Sioux Tribes' invocation of the treaty, the Fort Laramie Treaties. Uh, there are two of them, one in 1851, one in 1869, I think. And um, in those treaties, which were ratified by the U.S. Senate, and you have to understand that treaties are only entered into by sovereign nations, that's international law, you know, uh, no one else can enter into a treaty. Um, and so when the U.S. Senate ratified those, they recognized the Great Sioux Nation. And, uh, and the, of course, you know, we, we say indigenous nations did not need to be recognized by the U.S. government. They existed before the U.S. government did. In fact, some of the first recognition that the U.S. government got is, was from Indian nations. So this treaty, uh, you know, gives the tribe basically, that gives the Great Sioux Nation ownership over the crossing of the Missouri River, and also most of Morton County, which is the county where the sheriff there, basically working with the oil pipeline company, actually, uh, you know, conducted an all out full scale military assault on the uh, Standing Rock Sioux tribe, you know, with everybody watching. And what I felt that was going on there was that uh, the, the standoff at Standing Rock, made visible the military occupation of our homelands. And this is what I get into when I discuss the issue of origin stories is, you know, I call into question, is the US really a nation? I mean, in the way you normally think of nations, or is it still a colony? Right. And I call it a colony without a homeland, because you know it split off from it fought a revolutionary war and it split itself off from, from its homeland, which is Great Britain. Right. And this is these are the lands of other other nations. This is not the homeland of the United States. It's a continued occupation. And uh, and so, you know, when you look at the origin story of a colonist, um, you're looking and that is a very simple story. That is a story uh, which you go to someone else's homelands. You occupy it. Then you export the wealth back to your ruling class. Right. You're one percent. This is the entire operation of a colonist and a colony. Right. And so based on that, you can predict what a colonist or a colony is going to do. Right. And this is this is where, you know, you get into this sort of this relationship is built on assumptions. And also these assumptions can be read as sort of, you know, uh, statements that lead to outcomes, which I call algorithms. And so, uh, you know, this, what they believe their relationship is to the land. Um, of ownership of, of you know, the sort of domination and a profit, right? These are all, you know, define the relationship and, and produce these outcomes, which we see all around us from climate change to even the constant threat of nuclear winter that hangs over all of us. And so, you know, I, I then propose that United States citizens are in fact colonists. And so then this is the question of their existence. How do you be a good colonist? How do you be an ethical colonist, right? because this is obviously not it, <laughs> you know, uh, we still live in a country where native youth and native people have the highest rates of suicide, murder, uh, rape, all of these things, you know, uh, the, the worst outcomes bar none in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, the data shows that. So this is the cost of the occupation of the American dream. And then I go further to analyze the history of land taking and the basis of it, which is of course, the basis is I, I look particularly at the Revolutionary War and also this mythology um, that Rick Santorum got into hot water for saying to that young Christian group, you know, that this is a Christian country and also that it's based on people striving for religious freedom and liberty, right? And An
0: erasure of culture pre-Columbia.
1: Well, you know, this is where I disagree with the idea that simple education, that these people are simply, there's a deficit of knowledge. I, I, I think that is not the issue. The issue is this algorithm. Okay, and, um, and let me explain. You know, the issue is this algorithm is at work. And so no matter what you feed into it, that information doesn't matter. So I wanna get
0: back to this algorithm. The through line is longer than we knew and we're, we're still, we're learning a new, how much the sheriff part of the algorithm, how. It is a remnant of the persistent remnant of the Civil War, but you go in your book back to where in Anglo history uh, in, in British English history, the how the sheriff uh, it, it's that's where the algorithm is created and that is a reinforcement of the asymmetry in how the Bundys were managed in Burns, Oregon versus how Native Americans were managed at Standing Rock. Yeah.
1: So it does, you know, the, the Bundys, of course, their stand is for their right to public lands, right? The right to privatize public lands, for them to have complete authority over public lands that they are leasing, even if they're not paying for the leases anymore. And uh, Clive and Bundy goes into a great deal of detail about, you know, this whole ideology. He had an attorney named Karen Bud Fallon in 1993, and she's a very well-known figure um, in the sort of uh, sagebrush rebellion group. And, uh, and she came up with this thing called the uh, county supremacy ideology, right? And it's a legal idea whereby they claim, and a lot of what they claim is it's interesting because it actually goes back to what they believe Anglo-Saxon common law entails. And so I did a lot of research um, about uh, this era of the enclosing of the commons and continued into the industrial revolution. Which the the commoners living um, in the countryside were removed and their villages plowed under, uh, so that the landlords, the feudal lords, um, could then turn their land into you know farmland or into herding sheep for sheep raising, and uh, the the mechanism for doing this was the Enclosure Act by which. You know, the parliament kept passing laws for about 300 years whereby people, what had been common land under this sort of old Anglo Saxon agreement, where commoners could go and have a little strip of land to raise them, you know, just to keep a subsistence level of existence, this was taken away from them. They were, they would have to enclose their little strip of land with a fence and pay for that, which was very expensive in order to lay claim to it. And most of them could not afford to do that. And so then, the feudal lord came in and then he enclosed it and then took it, privatized it, basically. And so the claim is that the sheriff and this the uh, county supremacy ideology, the sheriff under ancient Anglo-Saxon tradition was elected by this is their saying, this is not actual factual truth. But they, they believe that, that he was an elected official elected by the common people, the Anglo-Saxon people, to be their representative and that within the boundaries of the county itself, he was the most powerful person in the world, like more powerful than Congress, more powerful than than the governor of the state, more powerful than the president of the United States, more powerful than the Supreme Court, more powerful than anybody. He or she has the ultimate say, right? This is their ideology. This is why they kept turning to the sheriff to do something, you know, and then threatening to, you know, to do this uh, kind of gather a group of get folks together to to elect to, to, you know, to take the sheriff out if he didn't fulfill his ancient Anglo-Saxon duty, right, to take over. And this is why they were talking to sheriffs. And there is a sheriff's group called the Constitutional Sheriff's Group, which claims to have several hundred members, most of them either present sheriffs or former sheriffs. And, and it's also why the Bundys were traveling from uh, Malheur to uh, the neighboring county there to meet with the sheriff there, because that sheriff, was receptive to these ideas right and then of course you compare that to the role of the sheriff sheriff kirchmeyer in morton county north dakota and how he worked in collaboration Um, and, and you know his county morton county actually exists in violation of international law the u.s has been actively occupying that land which under treaty is part of the great sioux nation so he is the county of an outlaw you know internationally illegal entity and, and yet he had no compunctions at all about doing basically almost you know, using all the kind of tactics that were used in, in Afghanistan short of using live ammunition on the people who were unarmed at the Ochetisha Cohen camp there but the uh, what I really was working at was deciphering and decoding the language that the Bundys were using to inspire their followers and a lot of it is around of course you know, the Constitution, you know, they carry those pocket constitutions in their front pockets, and then also of the Revolutionary War language, and and before that of Thomas Paine, and the language of the English Civil War. Um, And so, uh, and then of course, referencing even farther back, these ideas of what old Anglo-Saxon common law was about. And this is where I get into the, that the Anglo-American tradition um, is very different than that of the indigenous tradition, the relationship with the land, because it's so defined by feudalism, right? Right. And, uh, and, and I, I first got a kind of a clue to this line of thought by, uh, it was, you know, the Bundys have a sign in their house in Nevada that says, remember what the name Bundy means, Right. And I was thinking, what does the name Bundy mean? And, uh, and I looked it up, and apparently uh, one of the meanings is bound servitude, right? It's kind of shocking name. And it actually comes out of a, an old um, feudal Anglo-Saxon feudal tradition where a peasant would go to the feudal lord, give his oath of allegiance, his bond, to the feudal lord, and in exchange would get land to farm and so allegedly, what historians believe happened was that once the Normans took over in 1066, and you have to realize that you know, we all know about William the Conqueror and the Norman invasion, but when William, um, Duke of Normandy, came with his buddies and invaded, they actually killed off most of the Anglo-Saxon nobility, like 90% of them, and took their places, basically. And when they came in, they interpreted that relationship differently. They interpreted it as actual serfdom. So it's at that point at which the Bundys and also the surname Bond, like James Bond, also comes from this, like a bondswoman or a bondsman, which is kind of a form of indentured servitude. They actually became so tied to the land that they were in de facto serfs, and so at that point they became property. When the lord inherited the land, he inherited the Bundys. So their relationship to land is not like what Indigenous people have, which, you know, I give a definition of Indigenous people as sort of the origin story of Indigenous people. And I get that from my grandmother's cousin, Vindalore Jr., who wrote the books Custer Died for Your Sins. Um, He's a Standing Rock tribal member. And also God is Red. And in one of his books, I think it's for this land, he gives a definition, which I found very useful to sort of contrast with. That of the colonist, and uh, which is a, a people, and you know, with a capital P, you know, Indigenous people. We often call ourselves the people or the original people. And so, uh, my mother's nation, the Navajo nation, that we call ourselves Diné, and so that means the people. And so they have an origin story that's actually based not in the relationship to a feudal system or a feudal lord, but with a meeting with a sacred being who is a manifestation of the land itself. And in this meeting, they are given rules to live by. They make an agreement. It's a, it's a mutually respectful one. And, and not only with the land, but with all the people who are already on it. And this includes, of course, you know, the four-legged, the, the winged ones, all of these. We make, you know, the green growing ones. We make an agreement recognizing them and being part of them. And so, you know, for the Kota people, you know, uh, that was with the meeting with the white buffalo calf woman, where we met the white buffalo calf woman she is a representation of the great plains and she brought to us the chombo the, the pipe and with that pipe that pipe was actually made with the front foreleg of a buffalo and when we smoked that we made an agreement to respect the people respect the land and this is our algorithm it's, it's you know it's like a series off. of if then statements you know and and it produces you know certain outcomes and so the relationship is very different and um, and our relationship is not through a feudal lord our relationship is actually through this sacred relationship with the land and to a specific place on earth. I mean, we're talking, you know, like for my mother's people, for the Diné people, it's the dine between the four sacred mountains and the four sacred rivers. And so we are not like transnational corporations, which I, I go into a great deal of detail of how a lot of this origin story of the United States is not tied up in religious persecution or religious liberty, as Rick Santorum was saying, but it's actually tied up in corporate entities and profits, namely companies like that started the Virginia, the Virginia Company of Adventures I'm out of London. Yes. And so these early corporate entities, joint stock companies uh, were formed in uh, Elizabethan, England, and you know before that as well, and her father's in Tudor, England. And basically they, uh, the monarch uh, could not fund exploration, and colonization on her own. So she turned to her subjects, and they pooled their money together. In exchange for funding these things, she gave these corporate entities governmental powers over the lands that they were dominating, which is, of course, what you see hundreds of years later at Standing Rock, where the Dakota Access Pipeline Builder Energy Transfer Partners in Texas is given governmental powers of eminent domain over the pipeline as how it happen happened at the Keystone XL pipeline, which I covered a few years earlier, and I talking to white landowners in South Dakota, Nebraska, I heard them, they were shocked. They were completely shocked because in this case, it was a Canadian company, TransCanada, that was building that pipeline. And they were shocked the US government had given governmental powers of eminent domain to a foreign company. And I was just looking at them going, isn't this the, de- I mean, this is the actual history. This
0: is the origin story of this country is, corporations being given governmental powers. Jackie, one moment. I really want for any listener who's just joined us to know that Jacqueline Keeler is my guest, Diné Ihantawan, Dakota author and historian, giving us the benefit of this rich, rich essential storytelling tradition, her new book out where she's drawing on greatly. And I highly recommend everyone get their own personal copies. The book is entitled, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy movement and the American story of sacred lands, all of what you're hearing here. So, back to the audacity of turning over an energy and infrastructure enterprise, giving eminent domain to another nation, even though the sovereignty under which that transaction had occurred was already questionable.
1: Yes. You know, in addition to giving a different read to the historical context of the Revolutionary War which, of course, the bunnies reference a lot, and also the Constitution. And I'll get into the Revolutionary War shortly. But one of the things that many Americans do not realize is that the validity of their land claim to our lands is based on a doctrine called the Doctrine of Discovery, right? And, and this was formulated uh, in the late 1820s in a series of cases uh, decided by the Supreme Court of the United States and uh, 18, late twenties, early um, mid-1830s. And there were three cases, and these cases are called the Marshall Trilogy, and they are the, uh, basically the foundation of Indian federal law in this country. And they're named after John Marshall, who was one of the first chief justices of the Supreme Court. And he was, in this one case, he was confronted by two men who both had basically claimed title to the same plot of land. And he had to decide which man's title was valid. And one of them had title through the state and one of them had title through the tribe. And so this was in brand new country, didn't have a lot of case law. So he, you know, he would seek legal advice worldwide, right, legal precedent. And and he turned to the Vatican. And and the Vatican, even though at this point the United States was not really a very pro-Catholic country, it was pretty Protestant. He looked at the Vatican and there were a couple of papal bulls that came out I think one in 1491 and one in 1550 from two different popes, uh, and and in these um, he constructed this doctrine of discovery, whereby you know the pope had said that um, that title fee simple title to land in any discovered countries when it was discovered by a European discoverer country and also that Christian country you know country under the authority of the pope But then, once they landed and they did the proper kind of acknowledgments, and and a lot of times they would land at the mouth of a river and claim the whole watershed, right? And so, at that point, the minute they touched the ground and and declared this to be in the name of their king or queen, that land, the title automatically reverted to the discovering uh, European Christian country, right? And that the indigenous people, the only title they possessed was that of animals. um, basically the right to occupation and uh, and use. That's it. That's all they had. So he cites this in this case, in order to declare the state's title was valid and the tribe's title was not. And, and this is still uh, act of law in the US. This is actually the basis. he was saying that as an inheritor as a colony, an English colony, and an inheritor, they even though the United States did not exist as a country when these papal bulls were issued, but they inherited that status. Um, as a European Christian discovering country from England, which did exist at that time. It became Britain after, you know, Queen Anne, but it was still England at that time. And this is how the U.S. has title to our lands. And this was invoked as recently as 2005 in the case of the city of Sherrill, New York versus the United Nation of New York. And this is kind of a funny case, but the, I guess the city of Sherrill in the late 1890s uh, decided that they would sort of sign a a lease with the Oneida tribe. And basically for a hundred years, give like a couple dollars every year and a little ceremony. And this was, they thought this was the basis of their title. And so when that they, I guess they thought in a hundred years, the tribe would not be around anymore, but the tribe still was in the 1990s. And so it was this big furor over what to do and because uh, it clouded the title of everyone's houses and businesses in, in the city of Sheryl, New York. So they took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court declared the United nation could not have title to their own land because of the doctrine of discovery. And this decision was actually written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, notorious RBG. And so if, when we talk about the U.S. You know, being colonists and colonizers and also being Christian, like what Rick Santorum was saying, There is a lot of legal basis for that, even in the reading of the Doctrine and Discovery, because they would not have title if they were not colonizers and they were not Christian under this papal bull, which is still active law within the United States. And then I mentioned the Revolutionary War, which of course they had to address. In the book, I tried to address the Bundys' claims rigorously, not just dismiss them out of hand and compare their ideas and philosophy to my own family, um, particularly my grandmother's family, the Delorias and their writings, um, which inspired certainly the Red Power movement, and so had a similar impact for the Indian people as what the Bundys are doing has for their own people.
0: So Jacqueline Keeler, thank you so much for your time for the parts one and two of this Digging Out episode. I really appreciate your taking the time for us. Yeah, thank you for having me. My guest was Jacqueline Keeler, Diné. Ijantuan Lakota, Dakota, author and historian with her new book, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands, published by Torrey House, available through your favorite independent book dealer. We are recording this on May 1st, 2021. Thank you for listening. Talk with you next week.